All right, go ahead, take your Bibles. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, as we continue our sermon series in 1 Corinthians, uh, we are preaching verse by verse through this whole book. And uh, the last few weeks have been really interesting. When I set this whole sermon series up, one of the things I said is that 1 Corinthians is a wonderful book because it's going to take us on all of these culturally difficult topics, topics that our culture is really trying to work out without the Word of God, that we ourselves have the tools of the Word of God, and we're going to be able to look into culture's ideas and then navigate them based on the Word of God. And one of the things we've seen is that one of the challenges with studying the Bible, this is like Bible study 101, okay? One of the challenges with studying the Bible is that we have to do the job of getting into the mind of the first century person who was receiving this handwritten letter. First Corinthians is a handwritten letter by the Apostle Paul, who was commissioned by Jesus to bring the word of God to plant churches throughout the Mediterranean in the first century. And he was writing to specific people living in a specific time, facing specific cultural issues. And, and sometimes what we do is we come to a letter that was written to someone in the first century, and we're coming with our 21st century American mindset, and we're reading our ideas into it. And so what we have to do constantly, whatever book, whatever chapter we're studying, is say, okay, wait a second, let's do our homework. How would they have heard these words? What was it communicating to them? Then once we understand that, then we draw principles from it and apply it into our modern life. We saw this over the last six weeks when we were dealing with a really interesting issue, food offered to idols, six weeks of this topic that seems like it has nothing to do with us in, in 21st century. But what we realized is that it had so much to do with their first century life. It, it was all over. It was everywhere they, they faced. And so our job was to be, okay, how do we get to a principle and apply it? And what we discovered is that there's a hundred ways we could apply this. The principle applies directly into our life. Well, today we come to another culturally difficult passage for us to apply into modern life. And as good Bible students, our job is not to skim over it and just say, well, that sounds like it doesn't relate to my modern life. Therefore, let's put it to the side. We can't do that with God's word. God has chose a, chosen a limited amount of words in a limited amount of books to communicate everything we need to know his expectations of us, to live in obedience and fulfillment of what he's, he's called us to do and to be. And so when we come to any difficult passage, we want to say, God, I have an open heart. I'm, I'm willing to, I, I, I want to put everything I might think outside of this to the side, and I want to know, what do you say? And we got to do the hard work to prayerfully determine what are the principles in a passage like the one we're coming up to today that will help us. Now, why is this difficult? Today's passage speaks into women wearing head coverings in the gathered church. <laughs> okay, so pause. If you are new with us, if, if you, this is your first time joining us in, in, at Park Community Church South Loop, I want you to know something. We preach verse by verse through the Bible, and that is a big deal for us. And one of the reasons we do it is so that we can't skip difficult passages like this. I want, I want, I want, you're invited into that. The reason we go verse by verse through the Bible is because we're interested in this church on everything God has to say. There's not one word that we don't preach in depth on in this church. And so if God said it, we want to know it. And so if you're new with us and you say, head coverings for women, what is going on? I say, let's figure it out together. Because if it's in the word of God, it's important for us to know. Okay? So this is a difficult passage. Uh, let, me, 
let me say a few things before we really dig into the word itself, and I want to explain why it's difficult. It's not just difficult to hear. It's actually difficult to understand. One of the things I did yesterday on my weekly email that I sent out, I actually sent to you, I think it was like a 20-plus page uh, chapter from a commentary on this passage that will kind of show you the study I did in order to preach this message. There's all kinds of difficult ideas in here. There's at least four different ones. Number, number one, culturally, we're just a different culture than first century Corinth. A woman wearing a head covering meant something to people in Corinth in the first century. It had cultural baggage associated with it that Paul would have assumed everyone already knew, okay? They would have already knew. It would be like today if I said, yeah, go get, uh, I sent someone to go get two grandes and a venti, <laughs> right? Now, most of you would know, I'm talking about Starbucks, okay? That you might... Two grandes and a venti would be coffee. But in 2,000 years, if someone read a, letter I wrote, read a letter that I wrote that said two grandes and a venti, they'd be like, well, what was he talking about? How do, right? There's just cultural baggage that we have with our words. Number two, in this particular passage, some of the words, actually there's translation questions what he actually meant. So for example, you'll see as we study this passage, in one of the verses, he's speaking about husbands and wives, but translators are, are debate. Is it husbands and wives? Or because the Greek term for husband and wife, which this was originally written in Greek, is the same exact word for men and women, more generally, which one did he mean? Men and women or husbands and wives? This is the difficult work of studying the Bible. We, we've got to do our work on this. Number three, well, we've got to ask a question. I mean, he's speaking about women wearing head coverings, and his advice is, his counsel is, women wear head coverings. And you look around our church, majority, not all, but majority of women do not wear a head covering. Now, why is that? Well, the question is, what transfers? Are, are we just cherry-picking? Do we just not like that one that much so we don't do it? Or is there some kind of principle that we're working off of to consistently apply all of God's counsel into modern life? This is getting tough. And number four... We have to deal with the question of, are we willing to be confronted? Um, in general, I, I, I found this to be true. We like to be confronted on the Bible on certain topics. There are some ideas we want our pastor to confront us on, and there are other ideas that we do not want to be confronted on. Today is probably in that latter half. Um, we're going to be confronted with ideas that many will not want to be confronted on. And our study, our prayer-filled, my shepherding spirit heart of this is, God, would we have an open spirit to be confronted by your word? Because when we live into what God's counsel does, when we live into it fully, there is great joy to be had. So with that as an opening, let me uh, read this to us. I'm going to read the entire passage first, and then we're going to break it down into its sections, okay? Here's the whole passage. Now, so Paul is changing topics. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything uh, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. 
But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. <laughs> this getting tough yet? Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The word of the Lord. Okay, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to pull out from here at least two, and if we have time, three principles, three principles regarding God's design for gender within the church. How about that? Three principles for God's design for gender within the church. Now, we come to our very first challenge in one of the opening verses here, in verse three. It says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, if you're using one of the house Bibles, or probably on your phone Bibles as well, you probably have footnotes throughout that verse. You have like a little like one and two, you can click on it, and you can see the footnote that the translators have written you an instruction. And your footnote probably says that right there when it says the head of a wife is her husband can also be translated the head of a woman is a man, okay? And this brings us to our very first translation issue. How do we determine what is meant here? How do translators do that work? When the guys who are writing the ESV translation that I preach from, when they were doing the work, they actually have a chapter at the beginning of the Bible that says how we came to decisions about how to translate certain words. And they bring this one up in here. I believe that they bring this one up right in the very opening of the book. Now, how are we going to determine it? Well, we can't just pick whatever we want it to be. We have to say, the way you, the way you determine when you're doing translations what word should be used is you use context. What does the context say? Well, certainly, when we talk about husbands and wives, the context of that it could make sense. That seems like that could be a simple way where we could be talking about an authority structure or something like that within a marriage. But one of the challenges that that, that has is that later on in this same passage, down in verse 12, he uses the same terms in a more general sense. So verse 12 says, for as woman was made from man, that's talking about Genesis chapter one through three, where God made woman out of the side of a man. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of a woman. All right, that's not speaking about a husband being born from his wife. That's talking generally. A man is born out of his mother, right? A mother births the man. So he's using the term in a more general sense within this passage. So the best commentaries that I've found, they believe actually that our ESV translation, that they haven't chosen the right one. They would say that verse 2, or verse 3, the more general sense is actually the right translation to be used. Because it would be strange for Paul to say husband, wife, and then just a few verses later use the exact same words to mean man and woman. That would confuse his readers. And so it seems to me that the more general sense is used. Now, I will say this as we go forward. The most obvious place where the principle of this is going to be worked out is within a marriage. And so I think that there's a lot of takeaways for within marriage. However, the other obvious place where this is being discussed is the context of the local church. 
this family. The next passage we get to next week is on communion, what this is all about. And his whole concept is, this is a unifying experience. When you come to that table, you are the body together, and we need to have a formality about who we are and what we understand. And so this has big implications for our church body, our family. Now, Paul builds out a premise in verse three. He builds out a premise. And the first idea I wanna say is that God's design for headship is beautiful. God's design for headship is beautiful. Now, he builds a premise in verse three. It says this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, what do we see from this? First of all, we see that everybody has a head. Everybody has a head. Everybody, who has, everybody has someone who is in headship over them. Now, we should be asking the question, our next translation question would be, what does head mean? That's not language we use in 21st century English all that much. We don't use that language. So we gotta ask, what does it mean? Well, we know a few things of what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean inferiority or superiority. The person who is the head is not superior, and the person who has a head is not inferior. Why do we know that? Well, because right in that verse, it says the head of Christ is God. Now, that, that gets into our, our theology of the Trinity. We know that Jesus was equal with the Father. The Son is equal to the Father. He, he is not inferior to the Father. He said, I and the Father am one. Colossians chapter one says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And so right out of the gate, we know from within this verse alone, let alone the entire Bible, that we know that there's nothing within headship that connotes superiority or inferiority. We'll come back to that in a little bit when we talk about abuse, and we'll get there in a little bit, okay? But we need to first recognize that's not what it means. What then does it mean? Let me quote to you two scholars who were in the document I sent out yesterday from the, from the commentary. Here is David Garland, who wrote what I think is the best commentary on 1 Corinthians. He said this, to be head of a group of people simply means to occupy the position at the top or the front. While it may result in authority and leadership, that is not its basic denotation. While this may have implications for authority, authority is not the point. Paul's primary intent is not to assert the supremacy of man and the subordination of women. Instead, it is to establish that each has a head it establishes the need for loyalty to the head. Andrew Perryman, another scholar, writes this. The point of that verse seems to be that the behavior of the woman reflects upon the man who as her head is representative of her, the prominent partner in the relationship. Okay. Now this begins to get into some gender distinctions. And it, it wildly flies in the face of 21st century modern world. And here's why. The 21st century modern world, when it comes to gender, is, is we, I, I think, not everybody will, will, eat, will, will say this, but I think in general, we could say there's great confusion over gender. We're, we're wildly confused as a society over gender. In fact, there's all kinds of new terms coming at us in, in terms of gender, things like gender, the gender binary, the gender spectrum, all these things that have never existed before, but we're, we're beginning to have conversations about them. Why? Because culture is very confused. And they've lost track of the word of God, which gives clarity of what gender is and how the two different genders are supposed to relate to each other. Now, that language that Andrew Perryman uses is of representation. Now, how is Jesus our head? And how is 
God, the head of Jesus. God the Father, the head of Jesus. Let's start there. Let's get a picture of that. Well, when you look at Jesus, that's the last part of that verse, and the head of Christ is God. When you look at Christ, you are seeing lived out the Father's life, who he is. To look at Jesus is to understand God. To look at his ways is to understand God. To look at how he lived, how he related to people. You're seeing how God would relate to people. He's representing the Father on earth. And so if you wanted to ask, what would God say? You simply have to ask Jesus, right? Because Jesus would would live and communicate all the things of God because he's the second person of the Trinity. His head is the Father, Now, in the same way, there's another headship that's listed here. We see, let me read it again, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a man is a, wait, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is a man, and the head of Christ is God. Again, we did that translation already of the wife and her husband. Now, what this communicates is that there's some relationship between a woman to a man within the context of the church, specifically within marriages, but also within the church, where the man is representing Christ for the woman in a kind of way like Christ represents the Father to the world. Hmm. Later on in verse 7, I think it's verse 7. Let me make sure I read this to us. Verse 7 says, For a man ought not to cover his head, we're skipping ahead a bit, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Again, there's these relationships here. Now notice, it doesn't say that man is the image of God and woman is not the image of God. It doesn't say that. Actually, both are the image of God. We know that both are worthy of dignity, respect, value, and yet there's differences here. Man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. And so there's something about this relationship between men and women where men are to exercise some kind of headship, some kind of representative role where they're behaving like Christ in women's lives. And women are to be the glory of man where they are showcasing through their life what the men are trying to lead them towards. Let me give you a practical application that'll give you some ways to maybe think about this. I hire people over years. I hire people. I've hired a number of people. I've interviewed a lot of people and decided not to hire them over the years. And I'll never forget, there was one guy I was looking to hire a while ago to be a, a kind of an associate pastor type role here. And he was great. I uh, liked him a lot. I did an interview with him. And I uh, did a number, a number of round of interviews with him. And then we met the family. And uh, the family was wonderful. Uh, honestly, loved his wife. His wife was wonderful. Um, but we started digging just a conversation with the wife. Now, at Park, we always say the wife of the pastor is not the pastor. <laughs> and so there is no, there's no, there, uh, my wife's job is not to, you know, be the pastor to you all or anything like that by any means. However, my wife does represent me where she goes. And as we got to know the wife of this pastor, there were two things that were quite concerning. Number one was how she was handling herself in social media. It was quite embarrassing. And number two was the way she physically presented herself. It was was quite extreme, we can say. And these two things, I was imagining bringing this pastor into our team, and I was imagining this verse, and while I wasn't hiring her, I recognized that she spoke for the husband, 
in these little ways. Why? Well, because of verse 7. Verse 7 says that woman is the glory of man. There's a wonderful verse in, in Song of Solomon uh, that's always meant a lot to me, that, that where, where the woman says, and it's, it's this relationship of a man and a woman in Song of Solomon, and, and the man, I think it's the man who says it, maybe the woman, no, the man says it. He says, I wear, my, my wife is like a medal of honor on my, on my chest. And if you think about that language, that's this. It's actually the same idea. That when a man walks into a room with his wife, as I, as I would do with my wife, I'm so proud of my wife and the woman that she is. I love you, Sarah. <laughs> She's an incredible woman of God. I know that wherever she goes, she represents what I stand for. She represents this church really well. She's the glory of man. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. Um, and I want to minister because I'm, I've already probably tilled the soil a little bit to get to some uncomfortable language, and we haven't even gotten really started. We're in verse 3. So let me do some ministering here. Um, historically, even within the church, there has been tremendous abuse of, of women by men who have incorrectly applied this doctrine. And, uh, and I want to just say, I know that because I've, I've, I've ministered to many of you, and we've walked through this. Husbands have abused wives. Men have abused women. Women have experienced the worst of the worst at the hands of men. And, and I need to acknowledge that here up front and just say, I recognize I'm preaching a message that for many in this room, when you hear this, you can't get past the abuse factor. There's nothing else to hear because you can't get there. And so let me just pause. Let me minister to you. We want to be your pastor. I want to be your pastor. I want to shepherd you through this. I want to care for you. We have a team of deacons. We have incredible people at this church who have been through much and who have seen the gospel heal and can speak into your life. Now, let me go a bit further than that and say this. Some people will read this passage and say, see, it's because of that doctrine that all this abuse happens. And let me correct that by saying this. When this is lived out correctly, it is the great correction to the abuse of men towards women. In every culture since the fall of Adam and Eve, men have been abusing women everywhere. That has been the history of the world. That is what has happened. Read Genesis chapter 4 through 6 right after the fall to meet Lamech, who's abusing women in the first few chapters. Okay, This is what has happened Men have more muscle. We've been built differently. We have more testosterone and more aggression. And when that is applied in an unbiblical, unchristlike way towards women, it results in abuse. The great correction of that, the only correction of that ever made known to man is this. Men recognizing what their role is, women recognizing what their role is. And when men begin behaving like Christ when they represent as they're supposed to their head towards the women in their life, it's incredible. The church thrives. Culture for the first time sees women treated the way they're supposed to be treated. When we abandon this and when we're afraid to apply it because of abuse, more abuse comes. And I've watched that play out as well. Number two. So first, number one, God's design for headship is beautiful. Second, God's methods for honoring headship are also beautiful. 
So the design is beautiful, but now his methods for how we are to honor it is beautiful. First of all, let's notice in this passage, in verse four, every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Let's recognize something. He just spoke about women praying and prophesying publicly in the church. So some people will read this passage and say, this is just totally culture bound. There's nothing for us here. This was just first century culture. Abandon it. That's not true. This was wildly insane for first century. For Paul, the Apostle Paul, to be establishing churches and to say, women, you are allowed to speak and to pray and to influence and to use the gift of prophecy within the local church. Nothing like that had been done. Paul was not being bound by first century Corinth at the time. They would have said, are you in? women were not allowed to learn in the same room as men at the time. That was the, that was the context. They weren't allowed to be in the same room. Education was not for the women. And then the gospel came along. Well, Jesus came along. And many of the followers of Jesus, many of the disciples, not the 12 disciples, but many of those who followed Jesus, of the many disciples that were following him, were women. And they were very confused. The rabbis of the day were like, this guy. What's he up to? And he was just living out the law the way it was always supposed to be lived. That's all he was doing. He was living it out the proper way. And, and then Paul comes along, and he, and he says, look, women, get in the room. Bring your gifts. Pray fervently. Use your gift of prayer. Use your gift of, of speaking truth to the church. Use it properly within the proper context and bounds that God has applied this. And so this is not culturally bound by any means. We're going to get later in, this, in, in 1 Corinthians into what the roles are and where there are limitations within the body of Christ. But notice first that he says, bring those gifts in here. Secondly, he says in verse four, men, don't pray with your head uncovered. Okay, that's weird. What does that mean? Well, in first century, that meant something. In first, there are statues we have from the first century of men going into worship of pagan gods, taking the corner of their toga and wrapping it around their head as they're bowed down. And it was how pagans worshiped. It was, it was a symbol of pagan worship. And they knew it. It was like a venti latte for us. Everyone just knew it, okay? You put, it, you put the toga over your head, you're worshiping a pagan god. So, so what does Paul say? Men, you are not worshiping pagan gods, and you're not worshiping that way. Don't do this. That's not, and you could see how that would be confusing, right? Because in the first century, they were coming out of pagan idolatry. And now they're Christians, and, and there were probably a group of men who just, this is how I've always done it, right? And he says, whoa, 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 that is, that, you won't find that. That's not what you're supposed to do. Men, take it off your head. That's what the pagans do. Don't do that, okay? Then he says to women, a wife or a woman who prays with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Okay, culturally, what is this? What's going on here? Is there something like the toga happening? And the answer is yes, there is. First century, a woman wearing something on her head spoke something very clearly. Now, first, there's a debate, again, of what is meant with this language, we see in verse uh, 4, 5, every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And it talks about a head covering. Scholars are debated on whether it means a shawl over her head, some kind of like shawl, or if the language actually represents the hair done up. In other words, not just down, like let your hair down kind of thing. Like It's not just down, but it's actually done up like you're in a formal place. They're not sure which one was meant by the Greek that's used in here. Both communicated the exact same thing. So let me tell you what it communicated. 
A woman who walked out in the first century with her head uncovered was communicating something to the men she was walking by. She was saying, here I am, men. Desire me. That's what it communicated. If a woman walked in public with her hair down, like the way she might around her husband at home, just kind of casual, it was visually communicating something in that culture. We, there are all kinds of quotes we have, and I don't have time to walk through all of them, saying exactly this from the first century, talking about women who were promiscuous, who would walk around publicly with their hair down. And what it was saying, it was communicating something, and the men were picking it up. Men have eyes to see what the women were saying by the way they were presenting themselves. The men could see it. And so Paul says, women, don't do that. Don't present yourself in a way that's communicating to any man that that you are trying to make yourself sensually available to them. That is not what is to be done. You are not to be saying, notice my beauty. Now, here's why this was really tricky and probably why Paul had to communicate this. The early first century church met in homes. This got real complicated. And they called each other brother and sister. So the place, like, they didn't really meet in buildings like this. They met in people's homes. And the home was the place where a woman could let her hair down. Right? And the brothers and sisters in family, those were the people you could be more casual with. You didn't have to, you know, do all the stuff to make sure you weren't communicating when you weren't supposed to be communicating. So now church is happening on a Sunday morning in your home and everyone's coming over, your hair's down. You know, well, I guess this is more casual. I don't, I don't necessarily read our modern kind of feministic, um, I don't read like into this passage, women are trying to exert some kind of, you know, third wave feminism over in first. I don't think that's what was happening. I think the better context is just, they were in their homes and they were being more casual than they probably should have. And then men were coming into the room and Paul's looking at this saying like, this is communicating things that aren't supposed to be communicated in the Sunday gathering. This, this is wrong. So he's bringing a correction here. And he's saying, women, make sure when you gather, you're communicating the right things with the way you present yourself. He says in verse six, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Again, this is all first century baggage stuff. If a woman was caught in adultery, in those days, one of the public punishments that would happen is she'd have her head shaven. That was, and so if you saw a woman with her head shaven, more than likely, what had happened was she was caught in adultery. And so he's, he, he's basically saying what I just said. He says, don't, you're communicating the same thing. You're saying, I'm one of those women who is making myself available. So he's saying, don't do that. Women, you're Christians. Don't behave in a way that communicates that you're an adulterer or a sensualized woman. Far from it. You want to communicate the opposite. You want to be modest in how you dress. Now, <clears throat> let me say a quick word here. About a year ago, I preached a message, and I had a, a very small section in the message where I, I had communicated that I had been doing some evangelism downtown during Lollapalooza. And I communicated that a number of the women who were going to Lollapalooza, I mean, you guys know this, you live in the city, you see the, the people go. I was commenting on the men and the women. The men were coming just drunk. And a number of the women were wearing almost nothing. And I, I don't, I, I literally mean, it was like, you know, almost nothing. They were going into this concert. And I made that comment in the message. 
And I got an email the following day from somebody who was saying, it really hurt that you were telling women what to wear, pastor. I don't think that's your role to be speaking to women what to wear. Now, I want to say two things. First of all is I hear that comment, and if you are listening to Pastor Rafe (laughs) preach this text, and you're saying the same thing, just know I hear that, but I also don't. And, And here's why. My job is not to tell you what to do out of Rafe's judgment. My job is to preach the text. And the text is saying, and, and actually, if you read that commentary I sent, the whole th- this whole thing is about women. It's built in a chiastic structure, getting to the woman. Yes, there's things for the men, but the whole thing, Paul is ministering to the women. That's the main point here of this passage. And, and it does need to be said how women dress needs to be becoming of a woman who's been saved by Jesus Christ. That's the passage. Now, let me show you how this passage guards against abuse of this doctrine where it has been abused before. Verses 8 through 12, it says this. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's back in Genesis. That's why a woman, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. We'll talk about that in a second. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. What is this saying? It's saying, look, men, don't take this where it shouldn't go. You are now interdependent on one another, men and women. God has so designed it in such a way, man, you are birth, you are dependent on women to be alive, men. So don't you dare take this passage and begin to apply it in ways and in spaces that it ought not to be applied. This is being limited, particularly into the way headship is to be operated. And that is a great guard against abuse. Now, what's this thing with the angels in here? Verse 10. A wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. There's debate, again, this passage is full of debate. There's debate about what the angels are. One option is this. The same word for angels can also be messengers, like a human messenger. And in fact, it's used that way many times in Scripture. Messengers. I sent messengers to you, Paul says in Romans. Other times, it's specifically an angel. So it could be this is referring to human messengers. Now imagine the situation, if that's what it's referring to. House church is gathered. The women have their hair down, but everyone's kind of going with it. And then an outsider shows up, knocks on the door with a message, looks in the door and goes, whoa, what's going on in here? Right? Women have their hair down. Men are totally okay with it. That would be a bizarre situation for an outsider to walk into in that day. Right? We could think of some scenarios in our day where it would be something similar. So that could be one way. The other way to translate it is that actually it means angels. I lean in this direction. Because I believe that when the gathered church comes together, there are angels that worship with us. From this passage, I believe that. And I believe that because of that, the the formal gathering of the saints that takes place on a Sunday morning where we're worshiping, we're hearing the word of God preached, we're communing with one another, we're taking the Lord's Supper, this this is being done in such a way that angels right now are worshiping along with us. And if you believe that, now that brings a level of seriousness that we should approach this place with. We don't want to mess around with what we do. We don't just write We don't just come up with random things to do on a Sunday. We go to the word of God. We say, what have you designed this place to be for? What are we trying to get after? How is the right way to do this? Why? Because the angels worship with us. 
Now that should, that should bring something to a lot of the things we do in this place. The way we sing, <laughs> you know there's some angels. There are angels that are around the throne room of God singing, we are told in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that's their job. That's how, that's how holy God is. The angels burst forth in song. Now what if when you worshiped on a Sunday morning, you believed that around this room were big, strong angels who were standing guard around you and were worshiping along with you, raising their hands towards heaven? How would you sing? See? Now, what if you also believed that? How would you prepare for Sunday morning? Would you join us for prayer at 9.15? As we prayed for half an hour over what was going to take place? Would you, would you read my email and click on the link that says, here's the songs we're singing tomorrow. Listen to them so you can be prepared to worship with us. Would you know the passage and, and process it before you came? What if we had a holy understanding of what took place in this room? I think it would change how we prepare. And Paul's specific application here is it would change the way the men and the women relate to each other. And women, very specifically, is his comment here, it would change the way we dress, potentially, to make sure that what we're doing is becoming of one who is following Christ. Now, who is the ultimate head here? Go back to verse three. I want to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. It's God the Father. And Christ is the head of his church, pointing us to God the Father, to God the fullness of God. And so men, when we're looking for instructions, if we all want to know what's the, what's the head like? Like what's the big picture? How are we supposed to worship Christ? We look to Christ. And we say, what was he like? What did he do? He's the exemplar. He's what we're trying to get after. And when we look to Christ, what we see is, is we see that the life of Christ will change everything about you if you study him. And he will challenge every way you live your life. He loved. He poured his life out as a sacrifice. He, he was regularly away in prayer. You want to be a good head? I mean, men, we're going to get to you in a second. But you want to be a good head? Or you want to, be, you want to represent your head well, women, as the glory of man? When Christ got away to be with God. He left the crowds and he got along with God. He, he ministered. He cared for people. He, he served them. He poured his, 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 his life out for them. He washed their feet. This is our head. This is, the, this is the epitome of what this looks like to live this out well. He cared for them. He protected his flock. And he, he poured his blood out for them. I mean, this is Christ, our king. He died on a cross. The, the, the head who represents the father, Christ, whom we all point towards is this great chain Right, And everyone has their role to play in this beautiful chain. Well, well, Christ, as he's representing the Father, he poured his blood out for us on the cross. This is what it looks like. This is what love looks like. That you could have your sin forgiven. That you could have life with Christ. You could have a full life that you were meant for. That's who he is. And now that gives us some instructions. Well, if Jesus, if that's what headship looks like, and if you lived out what it looks like to represent your head really well, well, that gives some instructions for men and women, doesn't it? I think so. Men, let's apply real directly here. Men, uh, you're called up to something really high. And your responsibility is to represent Jesus to the women in your life. 
You're the head. You're called to defend the women in your life, to protect them the way Jesus protects his flock. You are called to guard them. You are called to, to, to be like shepherds in, in everyone's life, to, to speak truth, to stand for the ways of God. Men, when you look at the Last Supper, one of my favorite moments in the New Testament, Jesus is gathered with some men, the 12 disciples. He's celebrating the Last Supper. And you know what Jesus did as he led them before they ate the Passover together? He led them in singing a hymn. Men, you ought to be the loudest voices singing. Ought to be. Hands raised. Men lift holy hands. Instructions to men in the Bible. Men lift holy hands. I know that feels weird for a lot of folks. You've never done it. I remember the first time I did it, I felt so strange. Instructions in the Bible for men. This is your posture. Now, if it's going to take a while to get there, I understand. That's what I'm here for. There are many men in this room who are desperate to build the men of this church up to know what your role is. And here's the thing. When men don't get this, when you don't realize your job is to defend, your job is to wash feet, your job is to use your muscles and your testosterone for the right godly purposes. It's the defense of the church. It's why you have broad shoulders. Did you know that? The, 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 The design followed the purpose Do you understand? This is not just evolution. God created you with testosterone to be pointed in the right direction. Not for abuse, to protect and guard and lead. Men, join me in that. You're called up. And if you need help getting from where you are to where God's calling you to, you are in the right place. (laughs) We got a lot of guys who want to take you on that journey. Now, women, what does this mean? As I speak to the men, does that mean you're not called to leadership? Does that mean you're not called to? No, absolutely not. It does mean men have a responsibility of headship. But does it mean, women, that you are the glory of man and where you go, you are to represent what this church is about? It does. You are to use all of your gifts, as Paul instructs women in this passage, to build the church, to equip the church, to care for the church. And you do it in such a way that honors the head. Now, let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 3. speaks to women. I love this passage. It's so powerful. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let's call out a few things here. Is, is, this, is this like women be weak? No, I mean, the, that ends with be courageous. Did you see that? that that's what it, it says, women, be courageous. And we got a lot of godly, courageous women in this room. I applaud you. Women, step in. Lead faithfully. Help, serve, and let your adorning be the, the beauty of a, of a hidden heart and an imperishable, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. First Peter chapter 3. Lead that in, bring that into the church. Bring all of you into the church. And, and, and men and women, let me, let me close with this. In our day, everything I just said is hated. Everything. If anybody from outside is listening in on this, 
And if you are from outside and you're listening in this and you haven't left yet, I'm, I'm surprised. I do oftentimes see folks leave in the middle of a sermon. And I, I recognize that. This is wildly unpopular. But the ways of the world are killing people. Literally. It is causing more abuse, more brokenness, more divorce, more depression. All the promises of how women were going to get ahead by rejecting the promises of Scripture, of what men and women were supposed to be doing and how that relationship was supposed to work. All the promises to get women to behave exactly like men and neutralize the differences between them so that there are no differences anymore have only resulted in more brokenness. The statistics do not lie. God's ways are good. And the world needs to see the church live into this with boldness, not cringing at what the Bible says, but saying, God, I have open hands. I want to know who you are, and I want to live this out properly. My pastoral question for you as we leave this today is, is what is God placing on your heart? What, what, what's challenged you today? What do you need to go home and say, you know, I don't, maybe, I, maybe you go home and say, I don't believe this part of that. And then your homework will be, go, go back to it. Use the commentary I sent in the email. Do further homework on it. Go back. And then what we want to do is we want to bring our heart and if we, we want to bring it into alignment with God. We, we want to say, if I'm off, it's not what Rafe said, it's what the scripture says. So, so get me back to center, what the word of God says, so that his church can be built properly. What is God laying on your heart? God has a beautiful design for men and women. It's beautiful. And if we get this right, the world will see it flourishing in this place. But if we get it wrong, we'll perpetuate the same problems. Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you. And we, uh, we recognize that we've just covered some pretty tough ground. And God, I pray for your help in navigating this as we leave here today, Jesus, that you would receive the glory. I pray for every man and woman in here. God, as we leave, that you would place in our hearts a desperate desire to understand your word, to apply your word, to think rightly about your word. Help us, God, not to forsake your word. Help us to be those who don't take our cues of what is right and wrong from culture, but get our cues from the word of God. Jesus, we love you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.